and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Roz Taylor. This week, what have women done to the beautiful game? We mull over the Lionesses' victory at Wembley. Keir Starmer's taking a tough line on the rail strikes, but what do the public think? And we talk about Britain's national story, how it's changing, and why Rishi Sunak is so very upset about that. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. A bit of news. We're running a listener survey to help us improve the show. The link's in the show notes. Fill it in and you're in with a chance of winning a T-shirt. Why not do it now while you're listening to the podcast? And a quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding platform, Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you can get the podcasts early and ad-free, merchandise like mugs and T-shirts, and most importantly, our undying gratitude. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more or follow the link in the show notes. Right, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to journalist and author Marie Leconte. Hello! Marie, Rebecca Vardy lost her self-inflicted legal case against Colleen Rooney last week. What did we learn from that verdict? Uh, well, I think the main the main thing we all learned is that you should never, ever, ever sue anyone for libel, no matter how bad things get, because, you know, it will come to bite you. I'm not, I'm not sure what else did we learn, apart from being tremendously amused by the entire thing. So I, I have to admit, I felt really French at the moment the verdict got announced, because then I was like hang on, I've forgotten which side we're meant to be on. I don't know, is that which is which, who's what? But no, I think it was quite actually a, a good day for press freedom because obviously both sides had tried to pressure the Sun into revealing its sources, but the judge ultimately said that protection of sources was more important than anything else, uh, which is good because, you know, the opposite would have set up, I think, quite a dangerous legal precedent. And yeah, and, and I guess, you know, what else have we learned? I think we, we should have more frivolous court cases, I think. I think the mood, the mood of the nation was enhanced for those weeks when the trial was running. Yeah, the Sun didn't have to reveal its sources, although it's quite clear in the end what its sources were, which suited everyone, I think. Yes. Also joining us, we have comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hi, Ahir. Hello. And importantly, it was also, it was me. I was the source. Of course you were. <laughs> you are very close, aren't you, <laughs> to Colleen? Where does it? What can I say? <laughs> Am I right in thinking you're not at the Edinburgh Festival this year? How can this be? I'm not. Normally around now I would be on a train up to Edinburgh feeling excited and terrified in equal measure, uh, but instead spending the spending the summer in London for the first time in a long time uh, when not sort of forced by the government. And I think that it's going to be a really interesting year for the Edinburgh Festival. For people who don't know much about the Fringe in particular, it's seen, uh, especially in the comedy industry, as being extremely important for people's careers and advancement and whatever, but also eye-wateringly expensive for performers, for people attending who just want to catch a couple of shows. And I do wonder, after the last couple of years where people have really had to find new avenues for both creativity and just to make money uh, to keep their heads above water, how sustainable this is going to prove to be. And I do wonder if there's going to be a bit of a sea change in the way that the fringe operates in years to come. Certainly, I hope so, because the prospect every August of paying for someone to go on a round the world trip and have their mortgage paid for a year uh, didn't seem that enticing. (laughs) So it might get cheaper for performers and it might get cheaper for punters as well. Fingers crossed. Perhaps this could be one of the only deflationary things. Uh, (laughs) That would be the dream. Our special guest today is historian, screenwriter and author Alex von Tunzelman with her latest book, Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History, shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize. Welcome to the bunker, Alex. Thank you for having me. Are you working on another book now? 
Oh, don't ask. It's the summer. It's too hard. <laughs> yes. I've got to start uh, coming up with a new proposal. So that's always, at the moment, I've got a lovely sheet of A4 paper, which says new book at the top of it. It's underlined twice. Um, so I feel that I've made great progress. Um, and I'm sure very soon I'll have a new book ready to go. <laughs> Can I just take this moment to say that yesterday I sent five and a half thousand words to my editor. He hasn't replied yet. Uh, so I'd have no idea whether they are good in any way good enough. But five and a half thousand words is a lot when you have actually never written a book before. And I'm very pleased with myself. So, so it wasn't just all work and dull play makes Rose a dull girl over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and crucially, is any of it underlined twice? <laughs> No, but there are italics. I'm a bit worried about that. I probably shouldn't use italics. It's a bad idea, isn't it? I'm sure he's going to have issues with that. Anyway. It's all over! England! European champions! For the very first time! The Lionesses have brought football home. Now it's down to the rest of us to make sure it stays here. You think it's all over? It's only just begun. For once, we don't have to kick off the bunker with the words Liz Truss. So thanks for that, Lionesses. Football came home last night as the England women's team beat Germany 2-1 in extra time at Wembley. It was the first major trophy for the Lionesses and the first win at a major tournament by an England senior team since 1966. I seem to have heard that. Date before somewhere. Ahir, you were pretty overcome on Twitter. Where did you watch the match? Uh, I watched the match at my local pub, uh, which was full to the brim with people who were extraordinarily excited and just in tremendously good spirits, which (laughs) is uh, sort of semi-unusual over the years as an England fan and was just an absolutely glorious thing to be part of. Like the feeling particularly when the second goal in and just the entire place erupting was extraordinary. What was the best moment? The best moment was, I mean, listen, I personally, I, I, I lost a fiver on it not being an England victory over penalties. I was convinced that this was going to be the time that England were going to win on penalties. Uh, and so I sort of take what happened uh, in the end. But I just think that the best moment, rather than sort of an isolated passage of play or anything, was just this feeling of utter euphoria, particularly after uh, being so close in the men's Euros, a little while ago and just watching that shine through a group of people when at the moment I I don't know if other people are feeling this but when you wander around the country there just seems to be a bit of a fug in the air of just like everything seems slightly on edge and like we're, we're not a country at ease with ourselves at all and so to have a moment where in England, you could you could feel extraordinarily proud of this group of people achieving such a remarkable thing. And it was like that, you know, that, that weight lifted off the shoulders of the nation for that little while. And I thought that was just such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it was a very healthy feeling, wasn't it? It was it was good. Maria, you normally a football fan. Uh, yes and no. I actually I did not used to be a football fan, uh, but then I got heavily, heavily, heavily into it at the last Men's Euros. It was really bad. I genuinely went from not watching the first England game in the group stages to about three weeks later, crying by myself listening to Three Lions at 9am. Um, so it, it was a steep, steep curve. Um, but yes, no, I sadly uh, missed the game yesterday because I got food poisoning. So, But I kind of felt like maybe, you know... The game, like the final I watched, um, the men's England team lost. The one I didn't watch, they won. You know, I, I'm not saying thank me, but I'm saying maybe, uh, you know, keep me in mind. 
<laughs> you, so you didn't watch the match, but have you been consuming the memes ever since? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the players kind of trying to read the little note that was being passed around the German players was tremendous. I think the press conference, the moment of that, that manager trying to give the press conference and all the players arriving and chanting is coming home. I would say I've watched it already about seven or eight times, like with sound each time. <laughs> um, so no, it's, it's been tremendous. Even just the memes have been great. What did you make of uh, Chloe Kelly's iconic celebration when she ripped off her shirt in jubilation and uh, exposed her sports bra? Is, is this an image for the ages? It really is. And it made me really happy, you know, at risk of stating the obvious as well, but just a woman, you know, showing some level of nudity, but in a way that was... Entirely you know, not sexualized at all. I didn't see anyone at any point even trying to sexualize it. It was actually, it felt like, you know, just celebrating strength and talent and joy. And, you know, it, it was, yeah, completely joyous. It was wonderful. And the fact that it was the main picture in most of the newspapers today. And again, as far as I can tell, no creepy captions. Well done for once, Fleet Street. Yeah, that was remarkable. I was amazed that there was no sort of sleaze, but there just wasn't. It was just a woman who was very happy. And that was great. During the tournament, crowds were filled with families and children, leading to a much friendlier atmosphere than the men's tournament last year. In fact, some of the laddish behaviour got short shrift, and bunker producer Jacob Archbold was at Wembley. He's here in the studio. He witnessed some interesting scenes. What was it like out there, Jacob? Hi, Roz. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, very different from any football match I've ever been to before. Certainly, a lot more pleasant. And I'm not. I'm saying that as somebody who does like the other side of football matches, but I think the atmosphere for the women's final was great yesterday. The behaviour you're referring to, it was quite funny, actually. There was a guy on the train when I was going to Wembley, and if anyone's been on a train with football fans before, they'll know they are so uncouth, very annoying, very loud and brash. And this guy gets on the train with his mates, and he's trying to egg everybody up and trying to, effectively, trying to disturb the atmosphere that's going on the train, which is one of peace, but also a lot of, you know, excited tension, a lot of families and kids there. He continues to do it all the way to Wembley Park, and I think, okay, that guy's going to have a very interesting day. I didn't think I'd see him again. Lo and behold, he was sat very close to me, and I saw him getting led out by two stewards halfway through the game, and I never saw him again. So I think he got kicked out. So there we go. Nice. <laughs> that That is nice. I've seen some horrible, horrible behaviour on the tube. And honestly, the nastiest times I've ever been on the tube has been blokes, football fans, just, well, it's been so unpleasant. Yeah, I think he misread the atmosphere and what what it was going to be like. And he was definitely there for a different reason than everybody else. Uh, but it but it was great. It was, it was very, very civilised. But also, I think we can't take away from the fact that on the pitch, it was a very hard-fought game, two great teams going at it. The atmosphere was very much matched. I think, by what was going on on the pitch. It was, a, it was a good occasion. Yeah, here I used to hear it said that women's football was just not as fluid, just not as beautiful, just not as accomplished as men's. Did the final put that myth to rest? I feel like this is, this is sort of an impossible question for me to answer because like very many people uh, in this country who watched women's football during this tournament or during this final, I don't have years and years of experience watching the sport so I don't know how it's developed over time but I can very readily imagine it is the case that if something is comparatively and it obviously still is comparatively underfunded when you talk about like the level of money that's in the men's men's premier league or something like that uh but if it doesn't get the same level of attention and support through from grassroots through to uh going to the professional uh stages then you can imagine why people would have thought that it was a comparatively like less fun sport to watch and stuff, and it's cool to see it get better and better. And I think that this is also applicable across sports, right? Like I think it's cricket is my my one 
really. And I think it's a tremendous shame uh, that there isn't more cricket on terrestrial television uh, to show that game to new generations of people who might uh, come up into it. Because it is the case that, you know, we saw it in the 17.4 million uh, viewing figures that excludes public spaces and things like that. It's when you actually get the opportunity to see this thing and then, oh, lo and behold, people actually have a tremendous time watching it. So I'm very glad that it's happened for the women's side of football. Would love for it to happen more for men's and women's cricket. Just It's just making sport accessible uh, that clearly adds tremendous value to it. Can I just add, by the way, the top three matches this year of attendances in Europe have all been women's matches. That's pretty remarkable. Wow, mm. that's so impressive. That's, uh, I think we need to give that a mention. That's That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's great. There seems to be a lot of excitement over something I didn't fully understand in the England-Sweden semi-final, uh, where there was something about a nutmeg. Apparently, it was the way that one of the players kicked the ball. Sorry, guys, I, I just don't it, know. It was extraordinary. They kicked the ball into the, into the goal and with their <laughs> heel. And it, it struck me as a very sweet kind of expression. Was this was this no, very, very between exciting. the player's legs? Yeah, yeah with mm. the back. Yeah. Oh, oh I right. see. Okay, can I say two, two quick things on that? Firstly, I viewed it as sort of ultimate retribution for Zlatan Ibrahimovic's overhead kick against Joe Hart uh, several years ago, and I was like, right, this is this is our version of that. This is great uh, on that level, um, and also. Uh, it was interesting, like, I, I thought that the, the passage of play leading up to that goal is somewhat like that goal just wouldn't have been worked in that way in men's football. So I thought that that was just a really interesting sort of difference. Like, oh, you are watching sort of a different kind of game that's played in a different way. Alex, after England's semi-final win over Sweden that we were just talking about, Ian Wright took the opportunity to mention how this needs to be the moment when every girl can play football in PE. Now, I am instinctively loath to make more team games compulsory at school because uh, they represented some of my most stressful moments in school. But was he right? Well, I mean, I kind of admire the sentiment if you want to do it, but I'm afraid, Ros, I clearly had a schooling a bit like yours. Um, I actually have refused to play team games at any point since they stopped being compulsory and I would rather chew off my own arm than play one now in adulthood. But, you know, I'm all for girls being given the opportunity. I mean, certainly when I was at school, uh, football was not on offer. It was very much netball and hockey, field hockey, two sports I particularly detested. But um, I don't know whether it would have been better to have football or not. Um, I'm certainly all for the opportunity being there. Netball was particularly <laughs> unpleasant because, you know, you're giving a girl a weapon with, net, with 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 hockey and uh, th- that's that's not a good idea under any circumstances. Uh, I think I would prefer football to hockey. So the tournament felt a lot less political than usual to my you know, experience. Is there would seem to be less dislike of Germany than you normally get in an England Germany game. Could we finally be moving on from the obsession with World War Two? Uh, here, do you think, or uh, was that still kind of there in the background? There's a, a, a sort of a kind of friendly rivalry and that sort of thing. I think is very important to uh, these sorts of games because that's what adds a level of excitement uh, to it, right? And you don't want to, like, you know, if I if I watch in- India play Pakistan in cricket uh, or England play Germany in football and stuff, it's just there's there's just something a bit exciting about that additional uh, edge to it, and there's no reason that you have to be unpleasant to one another uh, while while that's happening. But I think that it would be a bit of a loss not to have some sort of additional 
So edge when basically, it's a rivalry. countries that we've been at war with or countries that we've occupied at some point, <laughs> it adds a bit of spice, does it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I am not going to stop uh, feeling that way when uh, England play Germany at football or when India plays England at cricket. And somehow I'm able to keep those two things rolling around in my head in a way that somehow internally makes sense. So <laughs> Last weekend saw another strike on the railways, as well as what the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps called unofficial strike action by drivers on Avanti West Coast. And the drivers say is not strike action at all, but a perfectly justified refusal to do shifts at very short notice. And the focus hasn't been on how the government is going to sort out this dispute. It's been on the sacking of Sam Tarry, Labour's transport spokesman, after he told the media that public sector pay ought to rise in line with inflation. It's always worth it to be standing shoulder to shoulder with striking workers. I'm a trade unionist, first a Labour MP, second. Keir has got to make the decisions Keir's got to make as the leader of the Labour Party. But Tarry's defenders say he was sacked simply for joining an RMT picket line. And the fact that he's romantically involved with the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, adds another twist to the story. Marie, how much upset has this caused in the Labour Party? I I think this is, it's quite hard to tell at this stage because there's always going to be, you know, the, the Labour Party loves nothing more than hating the Labour Party. Um, and actually, it not it, it not had any bit of infighting. I wrote a column a few weeks ago saying, this is very odd. The Labour Party seems to be quiet at the moment. Why? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so I think that the cynical part of me says that this is just a bit of a fight between the left and the right of the party, which has to happen, you know, every sort of like um, new moon. But, but yeah, I, I think the real question is, is this the beginning of something bigger? Because we've started having some noises from certain unions saying actually they may start rethinking their relationship with the Labour Party. Obviously, if that does happen, that would be very, very big news. If we do, I mean, say, yeah, we could start seeing maybe some shadow cabinet resignations. But again, that feels quite unlikely. You know, there's basically no one from the left of the party in the shadow cabinet anymore. And also was it, I think Lisa and Andy today went on some picket lines and the noises coming out of the of Keir Starmer's office make it seem like she will not be sacked for it. So I think, I, I don't know, but basically I'm, I'm struggling to get particularly exercised about it. I may be wrong, something may be changed. Like that, that's, something may happen, um, you know, over the next few days. But as it stands, I think it's just the Labour Party being the Labour Party, especially in the summer. There's nothing else to do. Let's hear Keir Starmer defending his approach. Sam Tarry... Um, was sacked because he booked himself onto media programmes without permission and then made up policy on the hoof. And uh, that can't be tolerated in any organisation because we've got collective responsibility. So that was relatively straightforward. Of course, so far as the industrial action is concerned, I completely understand the frustration of so many working people who've seen the prices go up, seen inflation through the roof, and their wages haven't gone up. So the Labour Party will always be on the side of working people, but we need collective responsibility, as any organisation does. Marie, is Keir Starmer's strategy of trying to distance the party from the unions going to pay off, do you think? I am going to be very annoying and say only time will tell because because cl- you know, clearly what he's trying to do is the kind of you know like pre ninety seven Blair type. This is the new Labour Party. You know we aren't such you no know, one. We're just our own people doing our own thing, etc. 
Um, you know, is he going to succeed in doing that and saying, you know, making kind of the, the right noises to bring back the parts of the electorate which haven't been voting Labour for a while? Or is it going to be a sort of Ed Miliband-like thing? Because, you know, lest we forget, Ed Miliband also spent quite a lot of time saying, oh, like, you know, it's actually quite complicated, the relationship with the union. <laughs> and actually what happened is that I think voters were completely turned off by it because what happened was that the Labour Party just talked about itself and the unions for about three years, which felt like 3,000. And yeah, and I feel like, you know, at, at time of speaking, it's not clear which one will end up being, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like if I were him, I would probably move on to something else now. But who am I to advise him? We talked a few weeks ago, I hear, about the RMT leader Mick Lynch's straight-talking appeal to many people on the left. The public still seem quite supportive of the strikes. Do you think that will last? Well, firstly, I don't think that the appeal was just to people on the left. I think that people across the spectrum could see that this was just someone being like, oh, uh, sorry, everything's gone up but the wages, so we'd quite like it if the wages uh, also went up. And it's like, oh, right, OK, that seems pretty um, pretty clear. It just feels like, particularly like the cost of living crisis that's happening at the moment, feels like the straw that broke the camel's back for a country that has seen stagnant wages, stagnant living standards or falling living standards or falling wages in real terms for a very, very long time now, uh, right? And add to that uh, sort of a, a government that's effectively been in power for a dozen years and seems entirely bereft of ideas uh, to do anything about it. So I do feel as though at the moment there is something qualitatively different to periods of uh, or sort of incidences of industrial action that we've seen in the past. And certainly I hope so. I, I hope that there will be a continued support for this. Uh, or, or really, I hope that the strike action won't need to be continued because there will actually be some gains made for working people who have basically just seen stagnant of all... You, you can see like all the, the graphs that the FT uh, <laughs> likes running constantly where it's just sort of like, oh, uh, line goes up, uh, or good line goes up and then either stays flat or goes down. Wonder what happened around that time <laughs> and hasn't changed since. That's a, yes, uh, I, I hope that people are sort of supportive of this because I think that everyone understands that no one's isolated from what's going on at the moment in terms of the cost of living and whatnot. And I think that everyone wants to get a fair shake and not have to sort of suck it up and have to deal with what, what we're being asked to by the government. Alex, Labour's history is bound up very closely with the unions, obviously, and that matters enormously to the party. Do you think it matters so much to the public? Well, it depends how many of the public are in unions and are also feeling the pinch of this cost of living crisis. I think I hear right to point that out. And I do think also good line goes up is a great slogan if Keir Starmer wants to adopt that, uh, perhaps for Labour's policy going forward, you know, make a good line go up again. <laughs> would, would perhaps be what needs to happen. Um I think Labour's always had a bit of a push-me-pull-you relationship with the unions. It's been quite complicated. But I would agree that, generally speaking, it's the kind of thing that puts the general public off because I don't feel they feel like they can have a lot of a say. I do think the way it pans out this year is going to be very interesting from a historical point of view, at least for me, on the basis that we are clearly going to see people in real hardship by uh, the winter this year and quite possibly getting worse next year. And, you know, we've had a long period of kind of declining union power, union membership. Will that turn around? I mean, I think it's quite interesting to look at the US at the moment where actually a lot of unionization is happening. 
they've got a very, very different union history. We have not necessarily connected to the left, for instance. Their unions have kind of a very different political basis. But it will be interesting to see if that is something people reach for. You know, if we do get to the end of this year, people really can't pay their bills and their wages aren't going up and they're in a lot of trouble, whether actually there will be an upswell of feeling that really some sort of power does need to be taken back by working people and maybe that is the way to do it. Marie, how do you think Liz Truss will handle the strikes, assuming that she wins as she looks quite likely to do at the moment? Badly? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, I'm not... how bad? How bad? I don't... But I think that's kind of, I'm, I'm not really sure, to be honest, because actually how, how differently really do, you know, have Conservative prime ministers dealt with uh, strikes and strikers and unions um, in the past, you know, 12 years in government? I don't know. I mean, as, yeah, I mean, at a risk of repeating what Alex was saying, you know, I could definitely see actually a proper sort of like winter of discontent with, you know, inflation and bills, etc. And actually quite a lot of unions at the same time saying, OK, enough. And it's not immediately clear to me that list trusts would be, you know, would have the diplomacy or the will to actually deal with that properly. And especially because, you know, she is kind of trying to paint herself as the kind of weird inherited darling of the right of the Conservative Party, rightly or wrongly. Um, and, and you know, and if you painted yourself on that corner, it would then be presumably quite hard to say, oh, oh, God, you know, I do actually have to deal with those unions and those strikers now. So, yeah, I, I, I think I will just stand by my original answer. Badly. I mean, presumably she will take some of her cues from Margaret Thatcher as she has done in so many other ways. Treat them like the NUM, perhaps. Who knows? Can't wait to find out. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yeah. Sunak and Trust been doing their best to outcompete each other in the I'm tough on the Union Barons stakes. Well, this is what's been, in many ways, sort of terrifying about the uh, Conservative leadership uh, campaign, where particularly uh, Mr Sunak's campaign just reeking of desperation to try and throw as much out, because they're trying to appeal to a selectorate who are, what, a fraction of a percentage of the uh, total population of the country and who are almost without exception a bunch of home counties mad bastards with an average age of ghost. And so having to deal with that means having to throw out these extraordinarily like hard right uh, proposals and you sort of go hey do you just hope that they're lying uh, in order to appeal to this selectorate in terms of what they went and also what does that mean for if they inherit a majority of whatever it is now which was gained by Boris Johnson under the uh, in the 2019 general election under a manifesto and he did he did get uh, the conservative party had a huge majority and a mandate to conduct what they wanted to do even if i dislike the thing that they wanted to do and in fact i do think a lot of it was a personal uh, mandate for uh, mr johnson to just inherit that and suddenly say well i am ripping up absolutely everything and taking this country into an entirely different direction, unilaterally, based on what I had to say to the selectorate of the Conservative Party membership, is an absolutely terrifying thing for a country to, to, to be able to do such a screeching handbrake turn. So I don't, I honestly don't know if the best case scenario is just they're lying. But that, what a terrifying thing. I mean, people say it's all just signalling, but, you know, I, I woke up this morning and Rishi Sunak had said he said he was going to cut the rate of basic income tax by 4p in a few years' time. But how can he possibly know what is going to happen? Now, with it's all that growth, all that growth that is definitely coming, I think everything points to a lot of economic growth, so I think he's entirely right to be spending it already. It's just like the definition of jam tomorrow, isn't it? <laughs>
Our guest this week, Alex von Tunzelman, is a historian. She's written extensively on how Britain's tried to define itself. Alex, what story have the Conservatives tried to tell us about ourselves over the past decade? Well, I mean, there's been a kind of quite a big shift, actually, in the various stories that the Conservatives have told, because we've moved from, um, you know, cast your minds back 300 years to the David Cameron administration, for instance, and there was this sort of presentation of this, you know, quite new liberal, small L liberal Conservative who was quite, you know, pro-gay marriage, pretty chilled out, quite liked the environment. You know, we even changed the logo to be a tree. And, you know, suddenly the Conservatives were sort of a bit more youthful and a bit more, I mean, let's not go as far as to say cool, we don't want to exaggerate, but, you know, like at least were sort of a bit more kind of in touch with their feelings and so forth. So that was kind of, you know, a very, very different world. And what's happened since then, obviously, a number of factors in it, but a really obvious big one that you can't miss is the referendum that none of us really wants to talk about anymore ever again. Um, and the sort of subsequent way that Brexit went and all of that is that there seems to have been this lurch very, very much to the right. And I think, you know, another factor in that has probably been something quite international, because of course, we've also seen, for instance, Donald Trump in the US, uh, quite similar times doing a similar kind of rightward lurch. Um, So we're now at the stage where, I mean, I was discussing it before, where sort of the conservative candidates for leadership are now coming out with some really quite very right-wing policies and sort of signalling generally. Um, And the story now very much seems to be, they've kind of dug more and more into what is called a culture war. And what this is effectively is the pitting of sort of what are set up as, often quite fictionally, traditional values against a sort of what is now called wokeism, used to be called political correctness gone mad or the loony left or various other terms. Um, The idea that really, you know, things have gone too far and it's time for traditional people to set up barriers and really return the world to some sort of imaginary state that it was in in the past, which was more glorious, generally a sort of fictionalised version of the 1950s. So we're now being told that quite heavily. So that's a really big change over the course of, yes, sort of 12 or so years of Conservative leadership. The stories have changed very much indeed. That's true. But I do remember when, during the modernising project, there were kind of indications, hints that this might happen, which perhaps we didn't pick up on in the way we could. One of them was uh, David Cameron's fondness for uh, the Island Story book, for example, and that kind of history of England, which is very based around kings and queens and traditional version. And then there was Michael Gove's drive for, you know, traditional values and the teaching of grammar and so on. I mean, maybe maybe there were the seeds there of something that we didn't fully appreciate at the time. Certainly. And I mean, of course, a crucial point about trying to understand the British Conservative Party in all its extraordinary complexity is that there are certainly, in a sense, some, you know, at least two quite significant factions within that party, which would have been, you know, pre Brexit, we would probably have talked about Remainers and Leavers, Um, you know, people who are kind of a bit more liberal and progressive and people who really are very, very, very trad indeed. Possibly the kind of real split there you could work out pretty easily by asking them, would you like to bring back hanging? Um, I suspect that would pretty much sort for you those two types from each other. There has definitely been, I think, you know, even if you do go back to the Cameron era, of course, those people still, you know, the kind of right wing of the party, you know, the real sort of um, hard core of the Conservative Party very much would still have been very uncomfortable with a lot of 
Cameron's modernizations and would have been very much still pushing a very traditional story. And as we, of course, know in the background, they were very much building up, we can now see, to a referendum that would be, you know, extremely kind of playing to their interests. You've pointed out that national stories aren't fixed in stone and sometimes they can change. Can you give us an example of that? Well, I mean, they change all the time. Um, An example that I wrote about in the piece was, this is quite historical, we can go back quite a way, um, was about the Duke of Cumberland, the guy who fought the Battle of Culloden during the Jacobite uprising uh, in the 18th century. So when that initially happened, Cumberland was hailed as a great hero uh, for what was supposed to be his victory at Culloden, finally driving Bonnie Prince Charlie out and supposedly at that stage saving England, as they often called it, the British Isles, Britain, for kind of a liberal progressive democracy. Uh, At that time, that was extremely widely lauded in England and even in lowland Scotland. And, you know, Handel was writing music in praise of Cumberland. He was a great hero. Um, And gradually what started to come out was, in fact, that what had really happened at Culloden was a massacre, an absolutely horrific massacre, which had spread beyond the soldiers on the battlefield and into retreating soldiers and indeed civilians and so forth. And the climate really, you know, that that made a bit of a difference. But really, it was the passage of time that changed that climate in a big way. So by the time, of course, the Hanoverians, Cumberland was part of the Hanoverian royal family, by the time that family sort of ground to a halt and Queen Victoria had to be sort of squeezed out of it and found to sort of effectively start a new era, Victoria herself came up and declared that she herself was a Jacobite, that she, in fact, was a big sympathiser with Bonnie Prince Charlie. And she started to go around doing things like erasing the word Culloden off uh, the obelisk in Windsor Great Park, really kind of rebuilding the idea of the British monarchy as, first of all, British, very much including Scotland, and actually kind of picking up this kind of romantic Jacobite identity. So the kind of fascinating thing was that what you'd seen is Cumberland being hailed as this hero of all the way through Britain is liberal and progressive and amazing. And Cumberland is the, in the 18th century, he is the emblem of that. In the 19th century, Britain presents itself as being liberal and progressive and trailblazing because it rejected Cumberland. Cumberland is then the opposite of that. So the story is rewritten to suit the set of opinions that are then current, although the facts themselves do not really change. Uh, yeah, talking about the way British soldiers have behaved in in uh, the past. It's the 75th anniversary of the partition of India this month. Mm. In fact, you're presenting a bunker about it shortly. Do India and Pakistan have very different takes on it? Because we don't think about it much in Britain, I think. We, we're very ignorant yeah. about partition. It's, uh, it, it's not thought about here, but is still definitely uh, a life concern uh, in in the countries that uh, sort of were, were born as a result of it, right? And I think that, for example, I, I can best speak to what how it's thought of in India, and particularly among Hindu communities uh, in India, because that's sort of what my family and ancestry uh, is. Um, but I, thinking of partition, the thing that I most recall uh, in terms of its relationship to Britain now is I remember being in India uh, in, it was 2014, right, the Scottish independence referendum. And I was there around the time of that referendum. And my aunt, who would have been born, I guess, in 1952, she's a couple of years younger than my dad, was reading about it in the newspaper and said that she hoped that it happened so that the British would have the first idea what it felt like and that it even wouldn't be anything comparable but it might just be like the smallest thing. It was interesting to me that it was still, you know, this this 
extraordinary upheaval that occurred only a few years uh, before she was born was still such a live thing when she thought about the politics of her country and in relation to the UK. So yes, I think it's it's still it's seventy five years ago, but that's you know younger than my grandmother uh, who was born a subject of the British Empire and is uh, something that's still with us today, definitely. Marie, is France better at this kind of storytelling, national storytelling, than Britain is? Oh, no, it's not, not at all. <laughs> um, no, I, well, I think there are a few different um, sort of things here. And obviously, I'm, I'm not a historian, so can you talk about really, like, contemporary stuff? But so I do think, you know, the stories we like to tell ourselves as French people, like the first one is the obvious, I think, not unlike the British of saying, actually, we went around the world and made the occasional mistake, but really more often than not, you know, we did some good work. And I'm, so I'm actually French-Moroccan, as it happens. And obviously, Morocco used to be a French colony and my family lost nearly everything uh, when the French arrived. And I remember a French relative talking to my mum and saying, but, you know, like, we did do lots of good stuff in Morocco, didn't we? You know, kind of expecting her to agree. And she was like, like pick, pick your audience better. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, yeah, and it was such an... And we, we still talk about it occasionally. You're being like, what a, what a weird, like, tinnied thing. But, but clearly that was someone who's absolutely genuinely convinced that actually France had done, a you know, a rather good job. So I think there's partly that. And I think, yeah, that the, how the story was... Stories we tell ourselves in France. I think the Republic has been used quite often as a useful cover for all sorts of sins, all manners of sin. So be that, you know, in France, we were obviously famously a country where class doesn't exist and a country where race doesn't exist. And, you know, everyone is a citizen of the Republic and everyone is entirely equal. And isn't it wonderful when, you know, obviously anyone who spent 24 hours in France and who's not white, I think, could confirm that that's absolutely not the case. So, no, I, I would not say we're any better than Britain. I would say to that. We. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Speaking of that, I, I heard today that Algeria has decided not to teach French to primary school children as it currently does, and it's going to teach English instead. Which must, which, which the, the story basically said this would come as a huge shock in France. Did you think it would? Uh, yes, well, so, so that that's an entire other topic, which is fascinating. So I think that's a debate that's been ha- very much happening in Morocco for quite a long time as well. So all my relatives in Morocco speak perfect French, um, arguably better French than most French people. But you know that that is something that's changing. So again, I think you're seeing lots of people learning again. Yes, yeah, so like English uh, quite quickly, learning Spanish as well instead. And even I think the relationship with France has become quite interesting. So amongst I, I do you know happy to admit I come from quite a middle class family in Morocco, and the dumb thing for a very long time was just you'd go and do your studies in. France and then, you know, come back to Morocco, do something else, whereas now, actually, you know, fine, I mean, you can do that, but that's not, that's completely lost as social status. So if you're genuinely someone from the respectable middle class in Morocco, you go study in, and actually in Britain, in the US, in Canada, just anywhere else. So it is definitely a relationship, I think, that's evolving. Emmanuel Macron uh, appointed a black historian, Pap Ndia, as his education minister in May, after he did quite badly in the parliamentary elections. Do you think he'll shake up the way that France thinks about its colonial past? Because the hope is that he will. But is that a too big a job for one man? It's, I mean, I, yeah, I, I would like to hope as well. Um, it's fair to say that it's not necessarily an appointment we saw coming. Um, and it's not an appointment I believe Macron would have made uh, when he first won five years ago. So this was very much a case of like, oh, God, 
there are left-wing people and people who are not white in this country. God, I'd forgotten. An easy mistake to make. So it did, I, I think, you know, talking to my friends uh, who have stood in France, I think that there's a healthy dose of cynicism, even though, like, he's clearly someone who is brilliant in and of itself. But, you know, whether he will actually be given the power and the space to actually change really anything uh, in French education very much remains to be seen, I would say, again, at risk of... Yeah, I feel like I, I worry I've been extremely cynical this entire podcast, but, um, but there you go. Alex, what's the biggest thing we leave out when we talk about Britain's history, when we tell our island story? I mean, there are so many things that get overlooked, but what for you is the biggest one? God, I mean, it's almost all of it. Well, actually, since I here mentioned it, I think it's pretty extraordinary that most kids in Britain don't learn about partition it's at schools or indeed the Indian Empire at all, really. I mean, there are some optional subjects to study it, uh, uh, you know, in, in the curriculum, but it's not a compulsory part of it. And that's always extraordinary. If I go to India or Pakistan and give a talk, um, I'm quite often asked, what do you learn about this in schools? And I have to say nothing. And the audience gasp generally <laughs> that that isn't even something we cover. But I think there's a lot. I mean, I suppose, you know, you can't really narrow it down to one single thing. But I think something that I notice comes up a lot that I guess covers a lot of this is that I think there's far, there is a tendency to imagine the past through the prism of people who talk about it the most. And what that means, just because really of looking at historical sources, is upper class white men. Um, Those are people who've left the most written sources in their own voices and so on for various obvious historical reasons. And so there's a tendency to assume that in the past, everybody thought like those guys, which is absolutely manifestly untrue. So people will say things like, for instance, well, everybody believed in slavery back then, to which I always think, did you think to ask the slaves what they thought? Because they were constantly having rebellions and trying to escape. So it appears that they weren't very happy with it. Or do their opinions not matter? You know, are those people that we simply don't listen to? Do we just think about everyone as a group that actually only includes very, very rarefied group of people? We actually don't know, looking at things like slavery or looking at the British Empire at its height, what um, a lot of people who weren't white thought. We don't know what a lot of women thought. We don't know what a lot of working class people thought because they were not opinion polls at the time and people didn't necessarily record their opinions in the way they might now. You know, now, who knows, future historians can trawl through Twitter for hours, finding the opinions of all sorts of people. But of course, in the past, it was very, very different. So I think, I suppose, what you leave out is actually, at that point, the vast majority of historical experience, really. I also think it's interesting that, like, so growing up, there were certain things that I learned through family uh, that I wouldn't have learned through just the sort of standard school curriculum and whatnot. And so I thought that I had a sort of pretty decent grasp, certainly a better grasp uh, on this country's history, particularly with regards to the rest of the world, than a lot of other people. And since being with my wonderful and spectacularly knowledgeable Irish partner, I have realised that that was just a gigantic gaping hole in my knowledge about uh, this country's relationship with uh, others. And that's another weird thing. Like, it's almost like you could say, well, maybe it makes some sort of sense that we don't think about what happened with these very far away countries and you might learn a bit more about that through your family or whatnot but we don't even know anything about the nearest country no we don't i mean kind of most people think they seem to assume that the history starts with the troubles you know and there's there's no there's no discussion of when britain first when england first arrived in ireland or how long it stayed or why it might have left or it just gets completely it gets reduced to that sort of oh it started in the 1970s (laughs) and that always that always amazes me 
Marie, uh, what what do you think we leave out when we talk about British history? You probably have a bit more uh, perspective on our rubbish interpretation of how we think about ourselves than than uh, than we do. Do, do I? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I do not. I, I was kind of trying to think about this, and and yeah, at risk of being a bit biased. I, I do think, and that's actually, to be fair, something I didn't quite learn in France either. But I, yeah, I do think both French and British people, especially English people, don't quite grasp the extent to which, for quite a long time, like you know, basically southern England and northern France were closer, arguably, to one another than southern England was to northern England, which is Scotland. Um, and you know that there was such a mix of you know, and obviously that language. If you look at all the names of the villages in southern England, so many of them are just French. It's not even vaguely anglicised French; it's just French. Um, and you know, and vice versa. A lot of my family is from Normandy, and there's so, yeah. So, so I think there's there's something. So if yeah, if anyone's listening and has a lot of money that's a book I would love to write Alex I'm very sorry I'm not trying to put my tanks on your lawn uh, but the one history book I would love to write is actually no try and do I think actually a a book on the Franco-English relationship but through the angle of actually we're kind of siblings and I find we do fight quite a lot but for a very long time we were generally very close as well Um, but yeah we need a lot of money so yeah anyone listening with 50k I'm here my email address you can find on my Twitter bio Um, but yeah so there you go Anyone listening with 50k, I'm I'm not going to write a book, but still, <laughs> if you want to get involved. <laughs> this reminds me of the time I went to Helsinki and I was given a bit of a tour of Helsinki by a Finn. And uh, he showed me, uh, showed, showed us the harbour and we looked at the harbour and he said, and this is where the English ships invaded in, I forget which year exactly. And I said, what? And he said, <laughs> we, we invaded you? And he said, yes. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Did you apologise? Because I could, I could see a British person be like, oh, God, sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What entertainments have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics? Marie, what have you been up to? Oh, I am so glad I can actually answer this something exciting for once because I feel I'm always like, oh, I talk about a book or a video game. I went to see Lady Gaga on Saturday and it was so good. I love her so much. I have loved her for many, many, many years. Um, and also Chromatica, her last album was what Kate me um, vaguely, vaguely sane during the first lockdown. Um, and yeah, and it was tremendous. She is just the best pop star there is. She's so good. She's brilliant. I cried quite a lot, more than I thought I would. It was brilliant. It's fantastic. Ahi, how about you? I've not started this yet, but I intend to uh, after this, which is uh, season three of For All Mankind, which is a sort of alternate history thing. The beginning of season one starts with what if, essentially, what if the Soviet Union won the space race and had uh, the first man on the moon and sort of goes for that. So for any fans of alternate histories, that sort of thing, uh, certainly the first two series were absolutely brilliant. And I'm very much looking forward to getting started on the third. Great recommendation. Alex, how about you? Well, it, this suddenly is going to seem a bit on theme. Um, I've been reading a new novel by uh, a woman, wonderful woman called Yasmin Cordery Khan, who those of you who are interested in partition might also know as the historian Yasmin Khan, uh, but she's just written her first novel. It's called Edgeware Road. And it is so far a completely fascinating um, kind of exploration of 1980s London uh, combined with the present and the history of the bank of BCCI and you know if that sounds dry trust me it absolutely is not it's very very dramatic indeed so I'm enjoying it tremendously. 
Well, I have started rereading Middlemarch because, you know, that's just my my uh, jam. But uh, also I'm going to make a shameless plug here because my daughter and I are doing a sponsored walk or several sponsored walks in August in aid of young epilepsy because she is epileptic and we are trying to raise money. So if you would like to sponsor me doing that, do please feel free to do so. And my Twitter is at, at Rosamond M. Taylor. And you can find that. And it would be wonderful if you wanted to sponsor us. And Young Epilepsy would be very, very happy. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Marie LeConte. Thank you. Ahir Shah. Thank you. And to our special guest, Alex von Tunzelman. Thank you for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll be helping us pay hardworking journos and producers, and you'll get benefits, including a shout on the podcast, like these. Hello from me to Anna McDuff, Philippa King and Inga Alfrey. Many thanks from me to Michael Hughes, Ian Clark, and Michael Doherty. And finally, many thanks and best wishes from me to John Mackay, Banalf Peak Savory, and Jason Mitchell. See you next time. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Ahir Shah, Marie LeConte, and Jacob Archbold. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jelena Sofronievich and me, Alex Rees. With assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 